and welcome to Podcast in the Past, a project of Glasgow University, helping educators collaborate, discuss and teach higher history. I'm Gabrielle Sars and I'll be your host for today's episode. This is episode one, why did attitudes towards immigration change? Don't forget, you can check out the link in the podcast description to access our tools and resources. Listen, baby. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color? Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You don't have to worry. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. We are fortunate to be joined today by Fraser McGowan, a researcher in American history at the University of Glasgow, and Beth McIntyre, an educator of history at St David's RC High School. Lovely to have you both here on Podcasting the Past. So Beth, what are the key challenges in teaching this topic? So isolationism for sure, I'd say is the biggest challenge. I, don't, I wouldn't even need to think about that question. Um, a lot of people just don't quite get the factor. Um, I think it's just because it's mainly like a long-term factor. They prefer ones that are near enough to the 1920s. They don't let anything that talks too long-term. Right. Um, I know that you need to understand isolationism to sort of understand the US history and compromise, like sort of look at why attitudes changed by the 1920s. But for me, like when I discuss like for evaluation, like, oh, you know, it couldn't have been uh, isolationism that led to attitudes changing because and you sort of discredit it. You sort of go back to like 1882, Chinese exclusion. Like the, the kids are like, why is that relevant to 19? Like, why is there such a gap? And mm -hmm. it's it's just a discussion about a long term factor they're, they're not keen on. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the biggest ones. But I also think social and economic fears are taught by some schools together. And for us, it's very obvious to say, like, this is what social means, this is what economic means. But for pupils, they actually mix them up constantly. Yeah. And when I say, like, oh, yeah, like social fears, they'll say things like housing. And I'm like, no, no, sorry, that's economic. Like, and they're like, right. So when we've I've taught it together before, like, I decided never to do that again. Like, they need to do them separately to understand like all the crime and the bootlegging and, and the social and the, ho and the housing and the economic and, and it just being completely separate. So that's probably the biggest key challenges I've faced. I think that isolationism is obviously a problematic concept. Firstly, because it's such an amorphous term. I mean, what exactly does it mean? And also, is it an accurate reflection of American foreign policy or the attitudes that Americans had to the world? So the orthodoxy is that America pursues an isolationist foreign policy. The American people, American politicians, don't want to be involved with foreigners anymore after the trauma of the First World War. That's probably an accurate way of describing the attitudes of the American people, who, for understandable reasons, were suspicious about becoming involved in the internal affairs of other nations. But it's probably not an accurate way of describing the attitudes of American politicians, including ones who were quite strongly associated with isolationism. Um, when you think of people like the, the, the Secretary of State and the, um, the Harding administration, Charles Evans Hughes, he, for example, was responsible for negotiating the Washington Naval Agreement, a conference that took place in November 1921, 
where the United States, Great Britain and Japan all agreed to limit the size of their navies and to curb their territorial, territorial ambitions in the Pacific. Um, when you think of later in the 1920s, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, initially it starts off as a kind of sentimental agreement between France and the United States, two nations which are never likely to go to war, agreeing not to go to war. Actually, by the end of the negotiations, all of the major combatants in the Second World War have all agreed not to go to war. So when you actually think of it, the United States was heavily involved in the affairs of the world. Um, things like um, the Dawes plan on uh, debt after the First World War. Um, all these different agreements that the United States actually reaches with other countries are not hallmarks of isolationism. Um, so is it accurate to describe the United States as, a, as an isolationist nation in the 1920s? Probably not. Um, it's just a, one example of where the research is kind of changing our, you know, the conceptual framework, the conceptual tools that we use to understand this era in American history. So that's like something we could be talking about when we're discussing the kind of latest research on the topic and how to bring it into the classroom. Yeah, and that's, and that's just one example. I mean, when you look at other factors um, like prejudice and racism, all of the research that's been done on scientific racism or on, you know, eugenics, you know, a concept which is basically the basis for the idea of there being racial superiority, of Americans being racially superior to other races, um, uh, these kind of concepts are being researched all the time and it's becoming quite clear how prominent these types of ideas were in American public life in the 1920s. People like th um, the American lawyer Madison Grant and the founder of the American Zoological Society who kind of made the claim that Americans were racially superior to other nations and they shouldn't allow immigrants into the country because that undermined America's collective health. All these type of concepts are being are being researched all the time and it's becoming quite clear that in, in the 1920s, these types of concepts like eugenics were really the basis for how Americans felt about foreigners, felt about immigrants, felt about refugees and asylum seekers. So Beth, are there any lessons that you've taught that have worked especially well, you think? Um, so our school, our hiring numbers kind of alternate quite a lot. So there's a lot yeah. of adapting of resources. Sometimes I'm doing a lot of group work and I've got larger classes, a lot of peer teaching, and then the next year I'll maybe have a class of eight. So it's very difficult. Um, for issue one, there's a lot of key things to remember, um, the wasps, the dates, um, you know, so I like to do a, a wee task at the start of every factor, uh, what do I need to know about? And that's where I kind of break down just because we use these massive issue sheets where there are all the bits of information, there's loads of historiography, there's loads of facts and figures, but that's really for the most able who need that to support their arguments. But for the weakest, like they do just what, what are the basics I need to know? So. They all get like a group sheet for about 15 minutes with about 10 questions. So like things like what does a wasp stand for? Um, name three old immigrant countries. Like what were in, what was a new immigrant? Like just things like that. And then we'll talk about it. And it sounds like quite a basic task, but it really does give them the essential knowledge they need to get them through the issue. Um, I particularly like peer teaching. Uh, for fears over revolution, the pupils have peer taught things before in the past. I think a few years ago, I remember a pupil talking about he had like a card on the 1919 Palmer raid. Someone else had the effects of the Russian, Russian Revolution uh, and all of the sort of effects on the US, like these immigrants coming to the US after. So they would make their own notes for about 10 mm -hmm. minutes, become like an expert, as I like to call it, and then they would go and teach this another group and I'd take the cards away. So again, they're talking about it and they're asking each other questions that maybe they'd be less embarrassed by asking in front of a class. Um, I also like to do a, a what, what's the link task with my um, colleague. We do this a lot. Um, 
I'll just give them dates and events and they link it all together to try and understand the issue. Um, so just literally putting up a date like 1919, what happened? And then like all the dates that they, everything that you can remember from that year and then they sort of tie together other things from that. Um, it gives most able learners to sort of the chance to push themselves and illustrate like who's really good at the evaluation. Um, I remember once talking about the Palmer Raids in 1919 and then because they'd done the National Five course um, Hitler and Nazi Germany had said well what was, what was happening in 1919 everyone else and somebody was like oh the Spartacus revolt and I was yeah. like so we're discussing communism here so and they were like oh right so and it's just like that moment of connecting the dots like yeah where's commun what's where's the situation with like other countries and fears over communism there and that's the kind of thing that I think the SQ want to see in evaluation like you don't question it when you see it, you see it and you're like, that's what I'm looking for. Right. It's yeah. like, what is the what is happening elsewhere? And it's like outside the box is what they like to call it at the SQA. Yeah. It kind of conveys that idea that all history is global history. Yeah. That, you know, there are patterns and trends that you can spot outside national contexts. Because, you know, comparisons are possible because nations are maybe not as dissimilar as maybe they seem on paper. I think when they really start to think across like what else they've learned in the past and build on their old knowledge as well like it is it's a really good moment to see and this is where you know current research can provide neat anecdotes that really illustrate a wider point i think um so the example i'm thinking of here um comes from some quite recent research by golden and duffy which was from 2020 really recently um about the story of paula Patton. and um, paula was an immigrant to the united states she'd come from europe with her parents and she was rejected at ellis island by the immigration authorities there on the grounds of her mental deficiency, even though her parents were admitted to the United States. So she was put on a boat, she was returned to Europe, forcibly returned to Europe, all because she didn't meet a certain standard of what a desirable immigrant was. And she was put on a boat, returned to Europe. Fortunately for her, the First World War broke out, the boat turned around, returned to port in the US, and she was given a temporary right to remain. Um, she was in that kind of limbo, um, status for you know eight nine years and if it was only really thanks to the activism of people like Clara McKinley and Mrs Walter W Steele who campaigned to make sure there was some provision in the 1924 Immigration Act for children who'd arrived in the United States before they were 16 and who had a parent who was a US citizen that she was actually allowed to stay um, all because she didn't meet some pre-agreed idea of what a desirable immigrant was because she was support supposedly mentally deficient quote. Can I ask what country she came from? Paula came to the US from Lithuania. Uh, she came via Germany with her mum, her sister and her brother. And they were joining her dad who had come to the US a couple of years earlier and who was working as a secondhand furniture dealer in New York, I believe. See, that's great though, because I can now make a story about her when I'm yeah. talking about like the prejudice and discrimination and, and pupils can um, like take information out of that from this one character. And then when they talk about immigration and like, the, like she's in their mind because they just love a story and they like a character they can hook on to. Especially I think with her being um, young as well, that's something that the pupils can really attach to because it's yeah. like someone in their own position, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. Um, of course, at the end of the year, we are teaching to an exam. So Beth, what key analysis um, and or evaluation points do you think you need to get across to your pupils? I think just the overall background to the question, a constant link to the question. I know you need to do it for all essays, but I think you can kind of forget what you're answering with an issue one sometimes. 
Uh, like when you're analysing social fears and you're talking about Italian immigrants in the 20s and the fear over them being involved in like crime, bootlegging, etc. All of that links to the prejudice that existed about these immigrants before mm -hmm. they even walks into the USA. And I think they constantly need to remember that. Um, without that groundwork, there wouldn't have been any worry over the immigrants, like you were saying. Every factor, uh, I feel, is built upon the already existing prejudice about immigrants. Um, my pupils always seem to stress out about remembering analysis. Um, this isn't a thing and they just need to look at the KU, that whatever they want to choose, because there's several bits of KU someone could be talking about, a specific Italian immigrant, someone could be discussing an event that they were involved in or a specific fear, and then they all have different types of analysis. So really they just need to ensure they're reading the knowledge above it and analysing the actual question, like how did that lead to a change in attitudes and they have to link to it, otherwise the SQ don't award. Yeah, and I think as well that not just remembering these key points of analysis will really help pupils if they are wanting to go on and study history further at university because, um, you know, it isn't about remembering analysis. It's a skill that we need to be teaching analysis. It's not points that they should be remembering to write in an exam. It's a skill that we should be teaching that they should then be able to do an exam if they know their knowledge points. Yeah, 100%. Um, what kind of links do we think we can make to present day events to make this topic more relevant for students? Well, from my perspective, certainly the, the most striking contemporary resonance is the hostility in the present day United States to immigrants. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of, you know, immigrants being somehow suspicious, somehow threatening um, is something that a lot of politicians in the United States now live and breathe on. It's the kind of, that's their, that's the kind of rhetoric that they employ to try and win votes essentially um, and we see that right from the top of the the political uh, the political hierarchy from the presidency right down um, thinking pre specifically of the previous administration you know the build the wall kind of rhetoric all yeah. that kind of stuff and the idea of there being a desirable and undesirable immigrant you know you've got to build a wall but there'll be a nice great big door in that wall and the wall will keep the undesirable immigrants out the door will let the desirable immigrants in all this kind of rhetoric um, has a long history. The idea that politicians can win votes from people like Senator Albert Johnson in the 1920s, winning votes on the idea of their own prejudice against immigrants, running all the way to the present day um, with politicians like, for example, Donald Trump, who will you know, win a lot of votes because he's perceived to be anti-immigration. Mm -hmm. And I think that can even be transferred just to where we are today in, in the UK as well. Um, you know, I think there's in the past five years been a lot of discussions around whether immigration is a, a positive or a negative thing. And I think that pupils are probably very aware of that. And we're probably going to have a lot of um, students who are immigrants themselves in our classrooms. And I think it is a really important topic that we should be discussing, you know, in it. Like you say, it's it's not just something in history, it's it's happening now as well. And these attitudes that have they really changed or Yeah, I think like when we we're talking about economic fears, like I think when we sort of break down how difficult it was for like immigrants to get jobs, I'm, I think we show them like ads that say like no Italians need apply and things I I've briefly remember um showing uh, the hire some ads for that. It must be in one of my lessons and uh, we were pretending that they were an Italian immigrant looking for a job and like how would you find one from these five ads and the whole mm -hmm. point is that they couldn't find one right, um, yeah. because they put themselves in that um, and yeah and we showed them like a little map and like why they would choose to settle in Little Italy 
rather than anywhere else because mm. you know you'd want to be surrounded by your own um but i think it's really interesting with the sort of modern day perspective and making it relatable there's always one pupil every single year for me that says something along the lines with oh my my gran or my granddad's always said immigrants are stealing jobs yeah and that really opens up discussion about relevance and they feel like they get a say because it's something they've actually heard themselves um, and we kind of just take a moment to break down stereotypes about immigrants and discuss how these attitudes do still exist despite the years that have gone by. Um, I feel immigration is always relevant and the movement of people has always happened and it always will. But it's important to see the history of this and how the US became known as the melting pot considering what's gone through with immigration and the attitudes sometimes you hear are unbelievable considering it is a nation built on immigrants. Yeah. Um, but the discussion about refugees and immigrants and it can just be a really hot debate in the classroom but I think this moment of talking about all sort of immigrants from the new countries all bringing over poverty and economic, like they're coming over, they're not adding, like they're not adding to the, the economy as to how it's kind of perceived within the essay and that's why they're the less desirable as you were kind of talking about there. Um, and I think that discussion allows pupils to sort of bring in their own family discussion mm -hmm. how like the older generations do still have these these thoughts and how they've actually experienced their their grandparent maybe saying this to them even today and it just gives them a chance to kind of talk about it and whether or not that is acceptable anymore yeah, um, and it's sort of just yeah it's a moment yeah mm -hmm. i think in, a, in maybe a more abstract sense if, if we think of the 1920s as being on the one hand being an era of fun you know the flappers, um, you know, George Herman Ruth, the baseball player, all these kind of, you know, being a time of being a time of fun and extravagance. But then on the other hand, being a time of kind of small minded nativism, small minded parochial nationalism that makes America kind of retreat from the world. When you think when you think of those two ideas of the 1920s, we can kind of apply that to, to the present day. You know, we think of all the kind of fun that we supposedly have in this day and age, you know, social media, all this kind of stuff, reality TV, all this kind of stuff yeah. that makes us think about, you know, a kind of free and easy world, you know, in the words of Cole, Cole Porter, anything goes, that kind of 1920s vibe of being kind of time of liberation. But then on the other hand, being a time of nations turning inwards, no, no longer speaking to each other in a cooperative way, but actually starting to look to their own interests first and foremost, and building a political constituency off the back of that. The, the, these kind of these kind of twin ideas, which are kind of in some ways quite contradictory, are certainly applicable in the 1920s, but also, I mean, right now, I mean, we see it all the time. I mean, um, we we certainly we certainly have lived through part of that, and I think this, that certainly high school pupils who have kind of come of age at that time of observing those tensions, yeah. the kind of TikTok generation of 24-hour fun constant connectivity, constantly being able to enjoy yourself and express yourself in whichever way you like, twinned with a kind of darker nationalism, nativism that kind of holds immigrants in some kind of at worst contempt and at best suspicion, mm -hmm. um, combined with other kind of political realities like, like Brexit, like the Trump phenomenon, and what, what would they kind of mean to the people who voted for them? What, what Trumpism means to people who voted for Donald Trump, what Brexit means to people who voted for Brexit. I think there are a lot of contemporary parallels a hundred years on from the 1920s that we can certainly draw out there, I think. Definitely, yeah. So, any other thoughts? 
So I just wanted to say that it's a really interesting and popular topic. The pupils revise the issue in a lot of detail in the hope that it comes up in the assessments or exams that they sit because they, they, they understand it well. It's also very separate to the USA topic as a whole. You can't get mixed up with that in any other issue. Um, for the British topic, for example, there's a lot of tie-in together with different issues and you can get mixed up quite easily, but they love the fact that this is just about immigration and they can't, they can't get it mixed up with another uh, USA topic. It doesn't always seem to be a popular topic for assignment in my experience, but I think it's because issue two and issue five are extremely popular because they want to use like their best example, um, which tends to be the black history because they just love it and it's so shocking that they can't not write about it and it's their chance to show off. But with assessments and exams every year, there's always like at least half my class have revised issue one and they hope issue one comes up as well because obviously it's going to come up in the British topic as well because mm -hmm. it comes up issue by issue which is also a great essay. Um, but yeah, it just still surprises me to this day that they find it so fascinating. But I think it is because there is a social history to it and Al Capone and looking at all the crimes. Yeah. And I don't know, there's always just, and like the experience of actual immigrants, as much as it's about changing attitudes to immigration, like you talk about people and immigrants and what they go through. And I think for them, like they can attach a character yet again. Thank you so much to both Fraser McGowan and Beth McIntyre for joining us today. Some of the key advice I think we can take from today's episode is isolationism is one of the key challenges as it's a long-term factor unlike the rest. Linking to other world events helps especially with fear of revolution as this makes a really good out-of-the-box evaluation point. And finally, analysis should be a skill that we are teaching rather than asking pupils to remember specific points of analysis. Hammering in those knowledge points should allow the pupils to develop their own points of analysis. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast in the Past. Don't forget, you can check out the link in the podcast description to access our tools and resources. Thank you and see you next time on Podcast in the Past, where we will be discussing Key Issue 2, Evaluation of the Obstacles to the Achievement of Civil Rights for Black People up to 1941.